Hello and welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. My name is Ben Wilson and I'm joined on Zoom by Tony Snow, Indigenous Minister for Chinook Winds Region of the United Church of Canada. Uh, Tony, thank you so much for taking some time today to join me and it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you. It's nice to meet you too. So tell me, in your work uh, with Chinook Winds Region and also with Hillhurst United uh, in Calgary, Alberta, what, tell me a little bit about, uh, about the work that you do, Tony. So I am um, the Indigenous Minister for all of Chinookwins region. And I work a lot with uh, various uh, communities of faith in the United Church and outside of that with uh, different partners and try to work a little bit uh, with our international partners as well, as well that are working in, with Indigenous people and have had good results with Uh, things like our World Indigenous Day and other times that we've been observing. For me, uh, this work is a continuation of the work that my father began. Uh, In the 1960s, he was ordained as the first Indigenous minister for the Alberta region and uh, had a very interesting career with the church. And part of that was to bring together Indigenous people from all over North America and Indigenous spiritualists. We had a good grounding in that traditions that are shared in and amongst our people. And also the theology around that because we had several um, Anglican and United Church and other ministers from the US came in the 1970s. And for 15 years, we talked about a lot of the issues that we are still hearing today and a lot of the drive for solutions and help and hopefully a positive outcome. There's always been that that temperament within our communities. And so trying to bring a bit of that awareness to the Chinook Winds churches, the uh, people who work as allies in the right relations portion of this. And as I'm doing this, uh, continuing on that work that I think is, is integral to trying to build a reconciliation type perspective for the United Church. I think that it's there. I think that there's a lot of work that's been done and that we're building on that as we move forward. Hmm. Yeah, like you mentioned, this is work that has started decades ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Intergenerational work, yeah. Yeah, and so it's interesting. I didn't realize that about your your father. Um, What other than the fact that your dad was a minister, what was it that drew you into ministry and into doing this work? Uh, primarily uh, my family members. My brother was just ordained in September as, uh, as a minister as well. He works with the uh, Pacific Mountain region. And so I'm continuing my studies and, and hopefully completing that this year and getting ordained. Oh, wow. And so continuing on in, yeah. And, and my sister as well, I have a younger sister, Gloria, who's in her studies with her husband, uh, they're both in, in ministry work. So we're continuing to build on that momentum to try to uh, support one another in this difficult work and to lift up the work that my father did. Mm, that's amazing. So another thing you just you also mentioned there that I wanted to come back to is uh, the Indigenous Day of Prayer, which we're, we'll be celebrating this coming Sunday um, in our church and across Canada. 
Um, we're also in the middle of uh, National Indigenous History Month in Canada, celebrating and commemorating that history uh, through the month of June. Uh, so the, the idea of this day of prayer, what does that signify um, for you and, and how do you observe or, or practice uh, celebrating that, that day? I think traditionally June is a very important month. Uh, June is usually the month that, of our highest ceremony, which is the Sundance. Mm. And uh, that is something that, that we still observe on our reserve. And uh, there's a lot of preparation, months of preparation that go into that, months of ceremonies and uh, calling discernment and, and other aspects of it. And then, um, so it fits into this time of praying. And when they held the ecumenical conference in Morley, they had a group of elders that sat as the um, steering committee and they put forward a motion to have a day of prayer. The day of prayer that they chose was June 21st. And this was in 1971. At that time, they put that forward and the allies and, and people who had helped, been attending and helping uh, the ecumenical conference, with financial support, with uh, physical support being there and volunteers, um, they took that word back to their churches, their denominations. And so we had two uh, affirmations of the call for a day of prayer from the United Church, uh, which in GC 24 in 1971 affirmed that they also supported the need for a day of prayer for Indigenous people, and the Anglican Church did as well. And so from those actions, uh, the day of prayer uh, gained momentum as, as a political movement with the uh, AFN and other groups with Elijah Harper. And as we move forward in, in the timeline, we had the apology for the uh, United Church and a growing call for apology in the 1990s. And um, the recognition of Indigenous people finally came in, first in Quebec, and then in other places, including Manitoba, and then in Ottawa in 1998, I think it was, that we had our first uh, Aboriginal day. And then that later became uh, recognized through the... Uh, with the Reconciliation Commission and in the settlement agreement uh, that they changed that name to Indigenous Day mm -hmm. and that added in 2009 the Indigenous Month that we now commemorate. So it's been since that time that we've looked on some of the activities and really that trying to remember or remind people that this was to be a solemn occasion. This was a time to reconnect people to their heritage, reconnect them to their stories, reconnect them to their people and their traditions, and to help shore up the younger generation to know who they are and to find that grounding because a lot of the, the ills of our communities still exist. And so this is part of the repair and healing to bring people back to their spiritual center. And that's the importance of the day of prayer. So as we come to something like we've had this year with the, uh, the Kamloops Indian Residential School and the genocide of the 215 uh, children that were found, 
it's a time when we are calling for that prayer again. We're mm-hmm. calling for direction and for um, atonement for some of these sins and some of the things that we have to uh, take account for. Yeah, when you look back at, at a history that has so much hurt and pain and there have been so many wrongs committed, it it almost looks like the idea of, well, here's here's a day or here's a month even. It's like, it, it's it's not enough. It can never be enough, obviously. And and to uh, to look at how we observe that day of prayer or this day of observing the uh, indigenous history throughout the month, it feels weird to to use the, a word like to celebrate that culture or to celebrate that history when there is that darkness to it as well, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I love that you use the word commemorate, and there is the sort of this solemnness to it uh, in some respects when throughout the Chinook Winds region, like in our area, what ways are you seeing that at, at an individual church level or at an individual person level, human level, how are people commemorating that in meaningful ways? I think one other thing is there's a lot of support for indigenous led events and, and what we are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a uh, leadership at the beginning of the month and uh, talked a bit about this, and especially as soon as it came out, uh, discussions around uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and around the findings of the uh, residential schools, the dealing with the residential schools. We have since heard a lot of information come out about uh, the gaps in, in effort and the shortcomings of everything that was done. And so trying to shore up what we know to be a, um, an effort that is to be inclusive, that is to be with Indigenous people, not for them. And so mm-hmm. when, it, when we come to the, the events and the things that are going on within the churches now, I'm hoping that a lot of them are doing uh, work with their neighboring communities, and some are. Others are, are not. And so as a region, um, they're putting together a regional Indigenous service on Sunday at 10.30 a.m., and we will uh, commemorate Indigenous Day there and uh, lift up some of these teachings. Um, what they call every uh, Sunday before Indigenous Day is Indigenous Sunday. So that's what we're going to be commemorating and bringing forward some of these topics and looking at them in light of our faith, in light of our scripture and how we deal with the current situation given the I think sort of the botched response to the entire uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action and what we should be doing where we should be at because we are six years into this and I think we are um, still trying to find a basis for these measurements that were to be done um, a lot of things that were to be to have now been completed even in the interfaith realm and so um, things that we are learning coming to this as students coming to this as people from communities uh, that we see the challenges and we see the accountability that's needed and so that we become more of that catalyst to 
uh, help ask those questions and to make sure that the responses are forthcoming and that we are waiting not so patiently for that. Mm. In some ways, it, it feels like this is still so new and it's still so fresh. But on the other hand, I mean, uh, growing up, we, we heard about all these things yeah. uh, many, many years ago. And, and it's been part of our, our country's history for my entire lifetime, your entire lifetime. Yeah. It, it shouldn't be that this big shock or this big surprise that, oh, this has happened. This needs to be dealt with in a better way. Um, there needs to be... Healing. I think part of the, um, the question there, we've been dealing with uh, the repatriation of bodies for a while. In the 90s, our elders went out to the Dunbo um, residential school because the shores of the Highwood River collapsed. And you started suddenly seeing uh, bodies and graves, caskets being uh, drawn into the water. So the elders had to rush out there and, and do prayers and, and help to sort of coordinate what the response and repatriation of those bodies should be. Uh, there were people from uh, the Morley Reserve who were taken to that school. So we became one of the, the groups that, that held for uh, response. Also with the Red Deer Industrial School, the same thing. Um, when I, and, and my brothers were part of the task force that, that helped develop a response there and helped to do some of the uh, ceremony and, and development of memorials and that type of thing. And then other, other times that we've had to do that for other instances where graves have been desecrated and places have been uh, torn apart. And so in this work, um, we haven't heard a lot in the media. We haven't heard a lot uh, been raised by communities today as we step into a world that has a little better awareness of cultural sensitivity, of racial sensitivity, of Black Lives Matter, and of Indigenous issues of missing and murdered women, there are, uh, it's a tipping point for a lot of the issues that are coming to the foreground. And so as we try to find resolution, it's no longer satisfactory to sort of say, okay, we'll deal with it in due time, because we've had due time and we haven't dealt with it. So yeah. a lot of it is trying to make sure that we are uh, being accountable. And as Indigenous ministers, as Indigenous people in the church, we want to see that accountability as well, because we want to represent a good church and a good faith and, and a good practice and a good religion. Do you feel hopeful, Tony, that this, that, that this is, is that tipping point or could become that tipping point? Because like you said, this is not the first time um, that um, bodies have been discovered. This is not the first residential school that we're, we've talked about in Canada. It's been going on for, for such a long time, but it does seem to have a different gravity in the media and in the conversations publicly. Um, and I don't know if that's because it, it involves children in a different way, or if it's just because our, we've maybe, like you said, we, we have become a little bit more sensitive to some of these cultural issues and, um, and embracing diversity in a different way. What, what are your thoughts on that? And do you, do you feel hopeful? I think to a certain extent, there is hope. There is, um, there's a lot more people who are educated and can speak up for themselves and represent themselves well in these forums and can uh, offer uh, testimony and insight into not only the, the current dynamics, but the 
um, the shirking of responsibilities and the ways that people sort of move in and out of uh, accountability. So this is um, this sort of a watershed moment of people who had traditionally been um, kept behind. And so when we see something like the emergence of the ecumenical conference in the 1970s, the first time people got to actually openly practice their religion and their, their ways. And then um, what's the first thing they do? They call for a time, a day of prayer, a time of prayer, a time of remembrance and a time of honoring. And so in our, in our prayer cycles and in, in the way that we do uh, culturally appropriate um, uh, practices, the, um, I think from there, the ability today to remember that, to remember that um, this was their first steps and we are building on that by doing what we can in this generation. And as I said before, it's an intergenerational effort. And so the, the generation after us will have to continue this work because mm. we know that if we uh, step back in any way, things corrode and we get back to situations where it's things that aren't acceptable suddenly become acceptable again. And um, it takes a lot of diligence and a lot of commitment, not only from the Indigenous people, but now that we have more partners in the non-Indigenous world that are willing to stand up they didn't do that 10 years ago. They didn't do that 20 years ago. For my part, uh, working with the church, um, bringing in every, every year uh, women to talk about the Red Dress Day and talk about some of the challenges there and to name, to call out that we don't see a lot of white people at the uh, events. We don't see a lot of uh, non-Indigenous people come out and support our work. Today we do. Today we're starting to see that. And so that needs to be encouraged. We need to make sure that uh, we are sharing as much as we can in those uh, efforts and that we are geared towards change, that we are focused on change. Mm. Um, you're right that it is a multi-generational uh, effort and that the goals that you're working towards, you may not ever see the complete completion of those in in our lifetime right but it's it's um it's about passing on those truths and passing on those teachings just like you know that's so integral to indigenous culture right is the the carrying of wisdom and passing on through language and through storytelling what mm -hmm. would what would be um i mean this is such a, a huge question that i don't even know how to ask it properly but mm -hmm. <laughs> If you were speaking to young people today, what would you want them to know uh, and to remember about the residential school um, crisis in Canada and history? If you I were think to I would want, distill that. Yeah, I think I would want them to know that history. I think I would want them to, to lift that up and to understand what it means. I think that even in our current history, uh, the call to action 48, said the date of March 31st, 2016, for church, faith, and interfaith groups to issue a statement as to their implementation of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And only the United Church has really done that uh, by setting that forth in 2016, saying that they will adopt, and they did adopt, the uh, UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. 
And so in this current history, there are efforts that are made. We have to acknowledge that and we have to know our history. We have to know what the, um, the current efforts are. We also have to know the past. We also have to know how we connect to that past. What the, not just the, the, um, the big headlines about it, but that there were um, concerted efforts at gender discrimination, at compulsory enfranchisement, people losing their status for going to school, their education, and making sure that in the world that we live in now, that we are maintaining our sovereignty on these issues, that we are working toward uh, a parity with the, with the Canadians that live around us. But we also understand there's an accountability of the, um, the residential school system and the efforts that were made. Um, the people were not required to record the deaths until legislation went through in 1935. The first schools began on reserve and on our Stony community. Uh, we had a residential school that began in 1873. And this was slightly before all the activity was going on out west. Uh, the reason that ours started early was because we had a better relationship with the uh, newcomers than others did. We had actually uh, helped to bring the McDougall family down. My ancestors brought the McDougall family down to Morley, where they would not be attacked. And so there's a history there of our working together. And so our people have always been voracious learners. And that one of the primary things that they wanted was to have the young people educated, their children educated. So they would send their children to the mission um, school to the mission house to be educated and they needed the extra room for the first residential school and and the the information there says that um, they didn't have enough room they were had they had to have the kids sleeping on the floor so they wanted to get beds for them and this was it was because of the nature of the relationship and because of the closeness of uh, our understanding of each other that this was something that was viewed as a positive and the reputation of that carried on even though as the schools became uh, taken over by bureaucrats and by government systems and imposing um, christianizing and uh, assimilationist agendas we still had that uh, notion because the uh, reverend uh, Bernice Soto, um, we had her out talking to us at one of our Right Relations events. And she said, she remembers as a little girl that, uh, and she's retired now, as a little girl, uh, she wanted to go to Morley School because she heard that's where they educate Indians. And so this, this reputation and idea of um, wanting to partake of a, a good relationship was at the forefront. And yet, the horrors that were endured uh, were parallel across the board. In fact, at the um, Red Deer Residential School, that was the one school with the highest mortality rate in, in the country. And um, likely before this one that we now see at Kamloops. And at that, and there were only like 71 deaths there. And so the, the, li the lives of people there and, and the 
remembrances of people from those times of a brutal and vicious institution. And if you look at the institution, they look a lot like um, very uh, haunting uh, concentration camp type buildings. And it's, so it's, it is something that um, I think for the people they're wanting to put to rest, but they also want it remembered. They also want the mistake to be highlighted and the responsibility to be shifted to the government to say, we did this and we didn't stop and we never stopped doing what we were doing. And so, so yeah. to the government, but also Tony, the, I mean, I was just reading, I didn't realize this, that the number was so high, but 70% uh, of residential schools uh, in, I'm not sure if this was Alberta or I think more likely Canada uh, were operated uh, by the Catholic church. So it, mm -hmm. You're right. It is uh, the responsibility does need to be shifted to the government, but it, there's sort of this weird blend or balance of yeah. of uh, onus and responsibility. Very few, I think, very parents. few churches held on to their properties like that. The Catholic Church was one that did. Um, others turned them over to state-run schools, and so the mm. residential schools became uh, more state-run and and gone was the nature of the relationship of caring and of sharing um, it was just following the the rules that were put in place they were just following rules that tends to come out <laughs> in in this discussion and, and mm -hmm. one of the things that we see from that is when there's 251 bodies buried in a mass grave somebody's got to know and somebody has to be uh, keeping that quiet, even through all of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions and all of the uh, awareness that's being brought forward in, in the timelines, people are still burying the information, hiding the information. Um, and so that's wrong. And we need to make people who are doing that accountable and try to figure out a way to bring honest facts forward and to deal with them in a productive manner that's gonna help to heal people. I just wanna read one portion here. Sorry, I'm just gonna read from my father's book when he talks about the residential schools. So the education consisted of nothing that had any relationship to our homes and culture. Indeed, Stony culture was condemned explicitly and implicitly. Our classes consisted of teachings in Protestant religion and ethics with the three R's in European and church history. From listening to these teachings, it seemed to me that the only good people on earth were the non-Indians, specifically white Christians. We were taught that the work and knowledge of our medicine men and women were of the devil. We were taught that when people died, they went to heaven, walked streets paved with gold, or to hell and forever roasted in the lake of fire. We were taught that only by believing in a righteous man named Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, could we be saved from that fire. No one in the mission seemed to have the thought of intelligent approach of saying, the great spirit, the creator, whom you worship, has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We are taught that Christianity was the only true religion, and that all others, including the faith of our fathers, were false and of the devil. This was real indoctrination, 
and some of the students dreaded going to church, but they were given no choice. There were confusing times for all of us when we were taught at home to respect the beliefs of our elders and at school to have respect, to have disrespect for their values. Wow. Tony, thank you for sharing that so much. Um, what, what was your father's name and where, where did he go to, which school did he go to? He's uh, Dr. Uh, Reverend Chief John Snow, Sr. He studied uh, in Morley and then uh, in order to maintain his status as an Indian, he had to go to the U.S. to get a higher education. So he ended up going to uh, Tempe, Arizona, to the Cook Christian Training School, which was a Indigenous uh, training school for ministry, and met my mother there. And they came back and went to various places throughout the prairies to do ministry, uh, ending up in uh, um, northern Alberta with the, uh, not northern, sorry, central Alberta with uh, Goodfish Lake and Saddle Lake, where the original um, Alberta congregations were set up in the 1850s. And he ended up building the church at uh, Goodfish Lake. Then they moved back to Morley. Uh, he went into, a, and he's, this is detailed in his book, he went to a meeting with the chief and council because he was asked by the elders to come there. And when the Indian Affairs Department people saw him there, they uh, shuffled him out the door and said he couldn't come in uh, because he was not a member of council. And so um, they had a snap election, and this was in 1968, the year that I was born. And he became chief, and he was chief for 34 years. So that's that's <laughs> the response of the people <laughs> to wow. that type of activity. That's a, what an incredible story um, that he had, and the things that he must have seen. It it blows my mind that he ended up going into ministry after as a as a child, as a boy, going through the school system, mm-hmm. was subjected to all of those that and and the discrimination and the uh, the indoctrination and then to re- i mean you would think that he would have wanted to have nothing to do with christianity and the uh you know the church and everything but there, he there sounds like he found a way to blend the you know the traditional indigenous beliefs and it goes back to with, our that 1950s 1850s idea and that that had carried forward uh, my grandfather was a lay minister never did anything with the church but he would go from house to house on the reserve in the 1950s, 1940s, and he would be preaching from the pre-Bible. And so they, he would continue this work that, uh, that we had picked up a century before, and it was that strong amongst our people that we needed to do this. And so when my father went into it, it was because of his example, and when we go into it, it was because of our father's example. So the, we're building on that perspective that says there is a balance here and the words of Jesus sound very close to the words of our elders. And there's something there that we have to lift up and that we have to understand because this is bigger than any of us. Wow. That's really powerful, Tony. And you're right that it's about those underlying truths that if you can realize that it is not about one or the other, or these black and white lines that that we tend to draw um as humans that 
I'm right, you're wrong, this is true, everything else must be false. But realizing that uh, creator, great spirit, uh, the universe, God, it, it is all different ways of creating language for the same, the same thing. Mm-hmm. When our elder uh, Bernice Soto saw her first Sundance in her community at uh, Fort Capel, her only response at that point was that this is our Pentecost. She understood the nature of what Pentecost was for the uh, Christian church and to look at what the indigenous people were doing, uh, this prayer for creation, this prayer time for our earth and the healing and and looking at our connection and and responsibility to creation. All of that was tied into what we do for the Sundance. And so this parallel keeps recurring that says, there's something that we are we are learning and that we are teaching that we are bringing back through these awarenesses and through this dialogue. Wow, um, I have to admit I'm not very familiar with the Sundance uh, ceremony. Um, can you share a little bit more about that and and educate me a little bit? Um, I did a talk with Awaken Church here in Calgary, uh, which is a more evangelical church, and one of the things that I talked to them about was the history of the, uh, the uh, Pentecost being a festival, the festival of the first grains, and how that in, in their tradition, uh, they would follow and understand that uh, this is a time of prayer and nurturing and thankfulness. And that's what the Sundance is all about. The Sundance is a very intricate ceremony, but it's a very communal ceremony. Everybody plays a part and everybody has a role within that uh, cycle. And it's all about um, thankfulness to all of the animals, all of the air, all of the water, all of the trees, and all of the, the life around us, and how we are connected and engaged with that. And it's almost as if it's a centering for the community. We come together from, from months of being apart, usually on hunting trails and, and different things, but they would come together at this time to share stories, uh, see the newborns, and, and talk about the future. And in this time is when they brought forward their their ceremonies of thankfulness, gratefulness, and pride in, in being who they were. And so it's very important, I think, that we begin to understand that there are other ways of looking at the world, other ways of looking at the Bible, other ways of looking at scripture become very integral to how we are engaged and, and how we can find meaning together through study and learning. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that a big part of that celebration would be uh, obviously traditional dance, uh, food, prayer, okay, it's, ceremony. It's about fasting. It's about fasting and going through this process to um, purify and to really come to grips with yourself and your purpose. Um, So it's a a little different than we would see in in what we would call Pentecost, because that's more celebration type of thing and feasting and that. This is um, really about finding what's important and celebrating that either as an individual achievement or a community achievement, 
what we've been through, through the times now that we come to finally be able to gather again will be important because there, there are recollections and there are learnings that we need to pass down to that next generation about what we've been through. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think as we're coming slowly, finally emerging from this very long uh, pandemic, we are all, all of us in around the world are in need of that now, maybe more than ever, the, um, the act of reconnecting, of gathering, of being mm -hmm. physically together and, and also re-examining what is important. You hear a lot of people saying, you know, maybe we don't want to go back to what was normal before. Maybe there's some things about the normal that was not very functional or not very healthy or not serving our, our highest good as individuals, as a culture, as communities. And as you're just describing the intent and purpose of Sundance and of, of re-examining Mm -hmm. um those deeper questions it's something that i think in our culture we don't do very often and maybe a global pandemic prompts us to do that mm -hmm. uh, and that's and that's great that's a good catalyst for for some needed work that needs to be done and maybe that's why you know things like the black lives matter movement happening during the pandemic and um this closer look looking closer at the residential schools during the pandemic the timing of these things has maybe happened in such a way that people are a little bit more thoughtful about, you know, how should this world work and how should our culture and our government and our, uh, our systems all be working and because they're not working always. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, we did a, a series um, since February, with the uh, a group called uh, Green Exodus out of Canmore, but a lot of it is driven by uh, people who were working on things, especially in the environmental movement at uh, Hillhurst. And so uh, bringing people together to talk about creation, talk about some of these relationships, especially around uh, spiritual core and understanding of, of where we come from, um, I think that's very important right now. During that time, we saw the um, the uh, mining application go down and then again the uh, the application to develop um, a area in uh, three sisters also got shot down in the uh, town of Canmore's uh, grouping but I think that 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 activism that awareness that building of coalition and voices that work together has been very instructive in how we look at what ministry is today and what really what the, the what we've been offered through the technology and the ability to work together across these platforms. Yeah, uh, it it can be exciting if if you're if you're an optimist. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be exciting to to think about those silver linings and to think about what could be possible for our future and for our children's future. Um, Tony, we'll, we'll maybe wrap it up by just asking you, uh, what are you and, and your congregation there in Calgary, what are you going to be doing um, this Sunday for Indigenous Day of Prayer? Maybe tell me, tell us a little bit about that. Part of that is uh, to do a regional service. And the regional service is really based on the way we do uh, our 
traditional services out in Morley, uh, the way that we gather and do ceremony, um, really based on how we lift up certain stories and certain tellings and, and certain songs. Uh, some of those songs go back to the 1850s and, and that we've practiced for and kept hold of, much like I was saying about my grandfather in the Bible, the free Bible. Um, people are in an oral tradition, they remember some of those connections. And so we'll try to lift that up and, and continue that work. We're also doing a, on Indigenous Day, a uh, national day of prayer. Uh, we're bringing the interfaith community to come in and to uh, offer their prayers at 5 p.m. on June 21st. And then on the 22nd, we're doing a film screening of We Were Children, which is on the residential schools. There's a lot of activity, I think, uh, that our people can still take advantage of. Everyone's always open to come in and take part. And they're all online, so it's very easy to, to find those connections. So it's all on the region website, and we'll continue to do that work into the fall. Uh, one of the things that may be interesting uh, to um, your congregations is, is some of the effort around Orange Shirt Day at the end of September and the Missing and uh, Murdered Women's Day that was uh, declared in Alberta called Sisters in Spirit Day on October 4th. And so every year we try to commemorate that and we try to uh, work with different community members to lift up certain voices and, and perspectives. I know this month we uh, we're trying to, to do a lot more than we're doing, but we're we're still getting there and hopefully with activism and help from other sectors of our United Church, we can continue that work together. Uh, I think we need more volunteers and more people coming out to these things to try to see uh, where they can help. Well, and, and it is so much more than just one day, uh, like we said earlier, oh. or, or even the month of June. And so um, I'm glad that you mentioned some of the other events and things that are going on um, outside of that, like uh, in October and, and so forth. What, what would be the best place to recommend people to go online to learn more and to, to keep an eye on uh, upcoming events and, and things to be aware of? Uh, we have a sign up at the uh, Hill First United uh, Church that is for everybody to come in and sign up and we'll send out, we send out newsletters about what we're doing in the community what we're doing in the region. Uh, we work with Muscogees up north there. So we work and try to work in a regional way with different churches and hopefully getting out to other spaces as we open up and are allowed to uh, go and visit. I know I did some work in the um, Northern Spirit area to, do, to go to Viking and other places to do the worship services there and just take part. And so just different opportunities that I think um, people don't usually get. And so as much as we can on the Hillhurst site and on the, the uh, Chinook Winds region site, we're keeping that up to date as much as we can. That's great. Well, I'll, uh, I'll put a link to that in the notes for this uh, episode of the podcast, which will sit on our website and we'll share that on Facebook as well. Um, Tony, I just want to thank you so sincerely for taking the time to connect with me today for sharing some of your personal story your father's story your grandfather's story it's it's really incredible um 
how you're continuing on their work and their legacy and with your siblings building on that uh, and really having an impact in your community and also within the United Church of Canada, within the Chinook Queens region. You're a, a enormous human being uh, in, in terms of the, the scope and reach of, of just your being in the world and the work you're doing. So I, I want to commend you for that and thank you for sharing about it. Thank you. Uh, and thank you everyone um, who joined us to learn a little bit more today and hopefully bringing more of that healing and reconciliation into the world. So thank you again, Tony, for all the work you're doing. Thank you. Take care.